You're listening to a Cripple and Co. production. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I'm coming at you with a titillating reminder that pre-sales for the world's first disability-driven sex toy, the Bump and Joystick, are open right now. You can go to www.getbumpin.com. That's www.getbumpin.com. And you can pre-order your very own Bump and Joystick right now. Or you can get a gift card for that deliciously disabled person in your life right now. Do it now. Go get it and be part of this amazing new innovation in sex tech. Thanks, friends. Hey, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I'm here with my friend Kristen, who's a friend of the show, and you've heard her on the show before. But did you know she's also a counselor in training with a physical disability? Hey, Kristen, can you tell us more about that? Hey, Andrew, I sure can. Um, I've been working as a peer support counselor for about seven years now, and I'm now expanding my services, offering trauma-informed accessible support to community members. Uh, Some of the things I cover are anxiety, depression, grief, relationship issues, and all from a disability-centered standpoint. I I love that so much, and I love that we're finally talking about offering disability-centered counseling to other disabled folks, because it's so rarely in the field, and I'm so glad you're doing that. And so I wonder, Kristen, are you offering these services to, oh, I don't know, listeners of a particular podcast? on this particular ad right now? Absolutely, Andrew. I'm offering accessible services to listeners of this podcast and anyone else who's interested in contacting me. And she's also doing that. Yeah, yeah, you're also doing it whether you're disabled or not, which is totally great. So this service is for everyone. And I think what makes it unique is that even if you're not disabled, you can learn things from a disability-centered lens. And I think that's really important. Yes. So, Kristen, this is awesome and this is so great. Can you tell us what your hours are like? Sure. Right now, I'm able to offer pretty flexible availability to meet the needs of everyone. I know that um, sometimes having physical disabilities and just life being busy in general, it's hard to uh, make time for things like counseling, but I think it's really important. So um, when we touch base, hopefully we can work out a time that works for you. That's awesome. Now, you know, you and I know from trying to get traditional counseling services in in the past, how often financially inaccessible they are. So what's the cost of all this great service? Yeah, because I believe that uh, counseling should be accessible and affordable for everyone. My fee right now is a sliding scale starting at $20 per hour. That is so, that's, that is that's like basically cheaper than anything you can buy on Amazon right now. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's yeah. Pretty awesome. So I want everybody to know how they can get a hold of you and how they can how they can access your services because what you're offering is so important. How do people get a hold of you? So right now the best way to reach me is through email. It's Kristen.williams10 at gmail.com. That's Kristen K-R-I-S-T-E-N dot williams w-i-l-l-i-a-m-s one zero at gmail.com amazing i'll make sure also Kristen, that all of this is in the show notes for the episode today 
Thank you so Thanks. much. Thank you so much for being here and telling us what you do. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Bye. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonopussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at Clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clone of willy or clone of pussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you, and they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns. So if you want to pick up your own clone of willy or clone of pussy kit right now, head over to clonawilly.com and use promo code DARKPOD. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout right now. And remember, this is a deal that cannot be cloned. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled, we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends, and thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm, of course, your delectable daddy host, Andrew Gerza. Let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get today started, shall we? I didn't do that intro right. What I meant to say was, I'm your delectably disabled daddy host, Andrew Gerza. Now, let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled, shall we? First thing is first, if you want to hear the show completely ad-free and one day early, consider joining our Patreon crew. Let me try words. Consider joining our Patreon crew. I would love to have you be a part of the Patreon crew, which means you get the show one day early, completely ad-free, on a very special feed that is just for supporters. means you don't have any ads and you get a weird, awkward... Sometimes sexy shout out for me on the air. So consider supporting us at one dollars a month, up to five dollars a month, or more, or a yearly amount if that works for your budget. I would really, really appreciate your support because 
I'm a sole disabled creator, and I would love your support if you're able to, especially if you're a non-disabled person listening to this. Consider supporting the show. But now let's get to the show right now. On the show today, I speak with best-selling author, writer, speaker, course creator, Tracy Garner. She has written 15 books, and she is a black person with disabilities that I am so excited to highlight today. We talk about so many different things, from our experiences with caregiving and needing care, to our experiences with finding happiness and kindness as opposed to anger. We I talked to Tracy about the kinds of characters that she wants to see in literature and how there are no black disabled love stories out there right now and she wants to create them. We talk about so many different things here and I love sitting down with Tracy talking about the the the, the necessary discussion of disability, blackness, care, love, all these things are intertwined here and I just really enjoyed sitting down with her and I love also that during our conversation Tracy reminded me that in the work that I do as a podcaster just because I was highlighting black disabled voices in February for Black History Month we have to do that every day and she she kind of takes me to task and reminds me that I have to be aware of my privilege as a white disabled creator and I really appreciated that so we talk about that too plus a whole lot more things I really enjoyed having her and I hope you enjoyed this interview right now on Disability After Dark Tracy Garner, hello. Hello, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm so excited to have you on Disability After Dark. How are you today? Me too. Me too. I am so excited also. I'm really, really glad to have you here. Um, such a pleasure on this snowy January when we're recording. Uh, at least it's snowy for me. Where are you again? I'm in Virginia, just outside of D.C. It was supposed to snow, but thank God it held off. But it is a dreary, dark dismal looking day uh it's sunny here but it's cold cold mm, cold here too it's i mean the winter the wheelchair user is not awesome um so i'm excited to have you here but for anybody who doesn't know who you are and doesn't know what you do can you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience tell us who you sure. are we do Sure, sure. First of all, um, I am an author and speaker, and I love the writing world and writing my books. I write fiction and nonfiction, and I've written 15 books uh, so far wow. and counting. Yeah, I just love it so much. I've been writing since I was 20-something, and now I'm in my mid-40s. Um, I also work as a case manager for a nonprofit organization that also assists people with disabilities. I work for one of the 400 centers for independent living across the United States. And that is a lot of fun, a lot of good work. Um, I love sharing resources and knowledge. Um, I'm a Martha Stewart wannabe, I tell, call myself. I love entertaining and bringing people together and ordering food, not necessarily cooking it. But I can order a bunch of different wonderful things. Yeah, from that's right. All over. <laughs> so I love that. And that's kind of my personality. And one day I hope to also write a book on entertaining and doing gatherings. I've done a lot of gatherings. You and should events. write a book on 
entertaining and disability and how to make entertaining accessible. Yes, like, yes, that would be so fun to me. That's like such an important thing because like so many disabled people want to have friends over, they want to have parties, they want to do this kind of stuff. But there's no book out there, at least not that I've seen, that's like how to entertain when you're a wheelchair user, how to entertain. Right. Or like, just what to do, like invite people over or people could be more inclusive about inviting you over and then making it work somehow, you know, like even yeah. where to get ramps or, you know, get a few friends to help, um, yeah. you know, so something like that. But definitely that would be a component that I would include in the book, obviously. And, and you know, just to get together because, it's just so fun. Or it used to be really fun before COVID. But, yeah, I mean, um, right? Before COVID hit, we all had to stop everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But people, I think they're going to be getting together again and getting out and having lots of fun. So I look forward to that when we can get together. Yeah, in 2025 when the world is safe again. <laughs> yes. When we all have our own automatic booster something yeah. in ourselves. Yeah, we like- just press a button. And Wouldn't that be boosted. great? I would love that. A boosted <laughs> and you never have to worry anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Next um, to the hand sanitizer uh, dispenser, there's a booster, self-automated that, booster. It would, that would be so good. I would love it. I would love it. <laughs> I would love an automated booster job for sure. Because COVID is... Although there's also addiction that could probably happen. So it might be bad. <laughs> like the morphine yeah. drip, people press the little button. Yeah, like a Jeopardy button. Oh my God. When I was in the hospital... Because they have it, they have a, you know, when you, they have those buttons on the medicine buttons on a timer, so you don't actually get. I know, I know, I hated it. <laughs> I would just press my like a Jeopardy button forever. I loved, I loved that thing, the drip, and you know, I asked them, "Hey, can I have some more?" And they're like, "No." And they'd just be like, "No, you, yeah, you're like, <laughs> they're like, don't be silly. They're like, don't overdose, okay." <laughs> Um, so can you tell me, Tracy, a little bit about your disability and how your, how your disabilities impact your day-to-day life? Sure. I was diagnosed at age two with, uh, muscular dystrophy, uh, spinal muscular atrophy is a form of MD. There's over 45 types of muscular dystrophy. I started, um, using a wheelchair in elementary school, um, when I was about five or six, but I could actually walk until I was about 10. And then uh, muscular dystrophy is a neuromuscular disease that makes your muscles weaker over time. So eventually I stopped walking, stopped being able to get around as much. I use a wheelchair full time now. Um, some of the you know issues that I've had, I have a really good attitude, so it's not as bad. Sometimes when I'm confronted with issues, you know, of course it sends you into this dismal thing when, you, when something's accessible or you can't participate or you can't go to that party at that friend's house who's not accessible. Those are the only, you know, when you're confronted by things, those are the real times that disability can weigh on you. But for the most part, I've always been pretty optimistic, pretty faithful. Um, I would say that the challenge right now for me as a 40 plus person is just dealing with the weakness and COVID, you know, hasn't helped. Um, Not able to go out as much. Um, All that engagement uh, going out, putting my key in the door at the office, uh, getting, you know, making your lunch or doing something, all of those things really engage my muscles. And so not having that, I've had to find ways to still engage, but it's hard because just the day-to-day operations 
if you're home, I work from home now, which I love it. Um, it's probably something I've always wanted to do um, is to work from home and not have to go out, especially during the winter months. But, yeah. you know, it's it's also a setback as far as your muscles uh, are concerned and not getting that exercise. So that's the hardest part just in these last couple of years. But even that, I've tried to find other ways to do other things and um, and, you know, get get active. What what? Because I know a lot of disabled people like. When I hear get active, I kind of like, oh, because it's so hard for us to do activity. Yes. What does yes. like getting active mean for you? Honestly, it is really uh, like it would seem so mundane to other people who don't have disabilities, but that's what we got to work with. And that's like just cooking for myself, reaching pots and pans and lifting things. You know, I do have help, but still cutting and chopping um, and doing things like that is still some movement. It doesn't seem much to people, but when you can't, and when I'm like kind of exhausted, even just doing that, um, but at least, you know, it's a whole process. It's 30 to 60 minutes to make a full meal. Um, so long as you're not using a lot of processed stuff and you're actually cutting and chopping things, fresh vegetable, vegetables and fruit. So stuff like that, um, you know, just doing those kind of things are, are important, you know, brushing your teeth um, and just trying to deny or uh, resist the caretaker or, you know, my mother who also I, we uh, share a house, um, just resisting their, their desire to help and saying, no, letting me, letting me keep trying, even though it's going to take me longer, I make, well, yeah. may make a little bit bigger mess, but still it's going to get done. It's going to get done in the way that I can do it even if it takes more time. Do you think that's like, do you think that's like a little bit of internalized ableism on your part of like, I don't want to need help. I don't want to need somebody to help me. Like, no, no, it's me fighting for, you know, just keeping myself engaged, keeping the muscles going. It, yeah. I really don't have any um, issues either way. I don't have a lot of deal with a lot of ableism and, you know, honestly, ableism is so, uh, new to me, it's still hard to really grasp when there are instances of it and when there's not. Just like microaggressions, you kind of don't realize till after the fact, like somebody was just kind of, I think I just been microaggressed. You know, you kind of just yeah. don't, I think I just been treated, you know, I just been had some ableist um, in my life, strife in my life. So I don't know that um, it's always apparent from the onset, it might take some time to be more aware of that. I don't think about that sometimes in the moment. And I think, you know, maybe that, maybe that's better to not have, to not think about it as often as some of us do. Cause I, I'm the opposite. I think about it all the time because I work in this, in, in this space. Mm -hmm. so I'm constantly confronted and thinking about ableism, but there, there, there is kind of the comfort of like not having to think about it so much and just living your day and not worrying about right. it. Yeah, but um, I would say more so too, it's more for me, it's the prevalence of prejudice. You know, we don't count encounter, I'm a black woman, um, you know, just to give context, but I don't, I can definitely tell more, you know, little aggressions and prejudice than I can the ableist. But again, it's because it's so new and I didn't always recognize that, but as the world, you know, changes and as we evolve and as, you know, racial justice and discrimination uh, grow more prevalent, those things I can definitely tell. But again, yeah, I'm not paying attention or just looking for 
the ableist stuff or the microaggression stuff. Like I, you know, it just doesn't happen. And working from home, you don't, you won't encounter as much as that because you're, you're much, cool yeah. of people is very, is still limited. You're in a little microcosm sometimes. Now this is going to come out in February uh, and February is black history month. So yes. I do want to ask you because, and I'm doing this month in February, I'm putting a bunch of people of color with disabilities on the show every mm-hmm. Saturday to cool. make sure that we're uplifting their voices and and thank you for uh, hearing from them because it's we need that. So I, I wonder, if, Tracy, for you as a black person, you kind of said in the form that you're learning how to figure out who you are and how all the, all of your identities intersect in terms of being a black disabled woman. How do you think that all those identities intersect for you, or do they? I would say that more disability comes through. I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's such a visible, a visible part. Um, of course, being black is visible to you, unless you're blind, of course. But, um, you know, people just see, I think they could tend to focus on wheelchair aspects more than they do color sometimes. And then, you know, color and disability can sometimes be a double whammy or like three strikes yeah. because, you know, uh, gender, uh, race and disability. So it's like, I fill three quotas, um, which, you know, still doesn't make any, doesn't like woo people um, along to my way of thinking, but I still do fill three quotas if you hire me, you know, in a job setting. Um, but yeah, intersectionality, intersectionality is so um, difficult. You don't know what you're going to get hit with, you know, on the day and you can't pinpoint any real reason why people act a certain way towards you. You know, today yeah. it might be disability. Tomorrow it might be gender. The next day it'll be race. Um, but thinking about that, like I said, the same for the ableist um, context and the microaggressions, it's just exhaust, exhausting. You can't go around. I am painfully aware of who I am, you know, and, um, you know, of the things that people can judge me on. You know, and that's unfortunate, but I already know it, you know, it's, it's just there. It's just a part of me. It's a part of my identity. How do you think um, we, like, I, as a white disabled creator, how do you think I can, or, or would, do you have any advice or, or ways that white disabled creators can just acknowledge our own racism within the disability space? Yeah, and I think it's it's so unfortunate that um, sometimes, you know, with a lot of groups, there is this kind of awakening. And we, you know, you would think we would be the less, the least uh, to be, you know, like prejudiced against one another. Yeah. Yeah. And it does still happen. Like, I'm amazed. I'm like, you're already getting picked on and bullied because of your disability. And then there are some groups, you know, not many that I've encountered, some people that are like, you know, they're bullies to other people because of their privilege. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's sad, but you know, what we need to do really is to relate to each other as humans um, and to understand, you know, a place of privilege that you do have so that you can know where um, opportunity lies, you know, for other people, like you said, you're going to be, you know, highlighting um, disabled creators um, in February, but you know, Black is 365. 
right? So yeah. you have to look at your total roster. Um, I mean, I'm just offering one way, like that's the only yeah, example please, I can think of please, right now. Of course. But you have to look at 365 days a week. How can you sprinkle more voices throughout the entire year? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. nobody, no black person wants to be relegated and get all their opportunity in the, the what is really the shortest month of the year. You know, what about the other? Uh, I never even thought about that. You're right. It is, it is the shortest month. That's kind of a cop out. Oh, we are painfully aware. It's almost like that's kind of like a little like Nick in our little in our spirit sometimes, because it's like, yeah, you gave us, you know, a month. Um, you know, we may get a little extra head start because Dr. King's uh, birthday is in January. So, oh, maybe we get like two little extra weeks of recognition leading up into February. But that is problematic. You know, why did we get the shortest uh, month of the year? But, you know, March is Women's History Month. So you could also think about making sure you have diverse women. There's something for every month and you don't want to lead your, you know, your life around this kind of calendar and national dates. But yeah. you just want to be aware of sprinkling uh, different voices um, throughout the entire year and try yeah. not to concentrate. And the other thing you might do is, you know, on the off months that you might miss the mark in having um, a wide array of vo uh, voices is to maybe just put those other voices in rotation. Again, so, you know, October is Disability Awareness Month, but maybe like November, December, you know, J uh, March, April, May, June, you might just say, rem remember, you can still listen to this, uh, listen to Tracy Garner's episode or anybody you have. Um, and that's for everybody. I don't want to just say, you know, just people of color, people who are marginalized, LGBTQ. I don't want to just, you know, mention that, but I'm just saying that that is something you need to be aware of, you know, all the time. And, and yeah. also look at the guests that you've had, you know, what pots of uh, voices did they fit in? And you probably are leaning, you know, heavily to different sides more than others. Yeah. And people have come to me and said, people have reached out on the podcast and said, you know, I love your show, but I, I need, it needs to be more diverse and it needs you need to hear other voices. And I love stuff like that because, it generally reminds me to like, oh, I have a lot of privilege as a white creator. I have to do, I should be using the platform to do more. So, I mean, I'm going to throw it out there. And I've been asked, I've been telling all my guests recently. And Tracy, it sounds like you have a lot to say. I do have a podcast network. Um, if, you, if you're looking to ever start a show, like yeah. maybe we could talk about that. That would be so cool. I have not, somebody else mentioned that to me the other day that I should start a podcast. I was like, oh my God, in addition to the gazillion other things that I'm doing, but you know, it's in the back burner. It's something that I think about. I love being a guest, but the editing and everything is so tedious, even though I could hire a freelancer for that. I'm you totally don't even have to edit. I don't, I, I don't edit the show. It's, I put out what we talk about and I put yeah. the, the beginning and the end together and that's it. That's good too. That is good too. That's probably what I would do. Be more like just, just natural and, and no perfection yeah, isn't going on yeah i mean because i think we need more disabled creators in the space so not that i want to like woo you but we could talk about if you if it's something <laughs> that eventually you want to do there's a whole lot of stuff we could talk about like you could yeah. do a whole pod on how to entertain as a disabled person that's true there is a entertaining podcast and i meant to start listening to it this year because i found it last year and i was like darn it 
But um, I do listen to other like cooking podcasts, like Al Roker has a show, um, a podcast. Yeah, I yeah. love that. Um, but the other thing I was going to suggest, you know, you do is just one more thing is ask those guests that you have to, um, you know, ask their friends and other people because your circles may be limited. And, you know, so, but if you ask the guests of color or the guests, the LGBTQ guests, all the other guests that you want an Asian Pacific Islander, those are people you need to be having. Whenever you have those guests, ask them to, you know, to make referrals and to um, invite others to contact you. And that's been wonderful too. In the podcast space, you guys really know a lot of each other and a lot of uh, people that I've been on the show, once they get see me and get to see my style, they refer me as a guest to other people. And that's been a wonderful blessing too. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking like there's a podcast, a friend of mine has started a podcast called Cripple Threat and they mm-hmm. review movies with guests sometimes. Oh, so cool. I will, I'll definitely throw your name in the ring and say, come on, you should go on their show. Cause I love their title. Re- I love that title. <laughs> yeah. It's a super fun show and they review basically disability themed media and they're always looking for people. So I'll put your name out for mm-hmm. sure. Um, There's another show too. Um, his name is uh, Steve. I'm sorry. His name is Lance uh, Johnson. I don't know if you know him, but he's been doing a segment um, called Ableist or Chill. He has a regular podcast called the See Through Podcast, but on his Instagram page, he'll review um, just a portion of where the uh, aggression or the prejudice might have happened against a person with a disability in the movie or in the segment. He uh, the other day he did um, a segment from Seinfeld where they park in a handicapped parking space. And then people like are so mad that they don't want to come back and claim the car (laughs) (laughs) because they're like, when that guy comes out of here, we're going to get him. Um, I thought it was so brilliant because it also is helping me understand, um, is this ableism or not? So it's called ableist or chill, but it's, that's not the name of the podcast. That's just a segment that he's doing on his, um, on his Instagram page we watched the segment together. It was really a good segment. That's Um, really cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. And so that's also educational for me in trying to help me understand when those instances of ableism is happening. Yeah, ableism is really something like that. I I love that you're learning. And I love, because I think a lot of us with disabilities, we learn what ableism is through like Instagram and through social media. And then we are told one way it is. But I love how you're like, I love how you've said throughout this interview so far, like, oh, you know, it's something that I don't always notice or I don't always think about. Like, I like that you're on a journey of learning about it and it's not something that is like defined definitively for you yet. You're like, it is what it is and I'm learning. And I like that. Yeah, definitely. Always be learning all the time. But the other thing I'll say too is something to be, you know, aware of is that as a person of color, you know, it's just one more thing to think about. And that is exhausting. You know, advocacy is exhausting. Um, You have to kind of choose your battles when you're out in the world. So that's something else that we all could be aware of is maybe this person doesn't want to deal with this because they have enough other stuff, you know, staying on top of what's happening with voter suppression. Am I being oppressed when I go to vote? Like there's so much already for us to carry if I don't want to, you know, deal with ableism and trying to figure it out when it happens, then, you know, give people grace too to say, that's not your stick 
for today. Let's move on. Don't you have enough to worry about? You're just trying to stay yeah. alive and, you know, stay off the radar of any crazy person who has, you know, some kind of issue with certain classes of people. So just yeah. realizing too, when marginalized groups have enough to do, they don't necessarily want to deal with figuring out, oh, I think I'm being, you know, ableist today or something, or I think this yeah. ableist situation just happened. I don't care. I don't have time. It's good to be aware, but it's just exhausting to really try to think about all that. Yeah, I found that it was when I started doing advocacy work in this space, I found that I initially took up the mantle of everyone's enablist and I'm going to fix it. Mm-hmm. And that got really tiring. I was like, and then I reached a point where I was like, fuck, I don't care anymore. Yeah. Like, like, yes, I want to guide you through stuff. And yes, I want to talk about ableism, but I don't want to get mad at you for every little ableist thing you do. I want to just live my day. And if you hurt me, we'll talk about it. And if not, we'll move on. And I think sometimes the disability space, like because we've been so oppressed, we sit in a space of anger and we don't know how to get out of that. And I yeah, just, my cool. advocacy has shifted in in years past because I just don't want to be mad anymore. I just don't, it doesn't help me, you know? It doesn't help. It takes up so much energy. Um, it's like a cancer that can take over your life and it causes depression. The other thing I was going to say is just, I try to look at people's intention. You know, I think people yeah. really do in certain instances, you know, there are people who are blatantly doing stuff, of course, and there always will be. But yeah. if we could all just relate to each other, like consider each other's heart um, and think about the intention that we have behind what we do, then we won't always be offended so easily. We will really, you know, try to weigh, like, did they really mean that in that way? Are they just unaware that this is, you know, causing me uh, stress or this is offensive? And, you know, like I said, of course, there are groups who want to be offensive uh, 24 seven all the time. That's what they get up, you know, wanting to do. I'm going to get up and I'm going to have a good time offending others. But I think the majority of people um, don't look at things that way. And they just, you know, every now and then stick their foot in their mouth. And, and it's yeah. just, you know, you have to, again, you have to have grace for them and be able to forgive them and also have a conversation um, educating them, you know, to, you know, what you said was offensive because of A, B, and C, or what you said was an ableist uh, comment and mindset because of these reasons. Or just, I mean, what you said hurt me period. Can we talk about why, like, can we talk about why it hurt me? Cause I think sometimes when we use social justice language in everyday situations, like mm-hmm. if I constantly was like, you're an ableist, then, then the meaning behind it, I feel sometimes gets lost. And I think, I don't know how active you are on social media, but I'm on there all the time for my job. So I see constantly people throwing out ableist. Oh, you're an ableist. Oh, you're an ableist thing. Like, mm-hmm. like, and I, I worry sometimes like, are we teaching people what that word means? Are mm-hmm. we teaching people why it hurts? Are we showing them that, like I always say, like my, my favorite thing in, in advocacy work to say around ableism is, ableism doesn't make you a bad person. It just means you have things to work on. Same with racism, same with all this stuff. It doesn't necessarily mean you're evil. It just means you're fucked up and we got to try again. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And you want to bring people to you and to hammer them about what they did wrong, you know, pushes them away. And so you'll never be able to get get together and 
reconcile if you just, yeah. you know, tell them what you did was wrong and that's awful, you know, and you suck, you know, you yeah, want to like, try to kill them with kindness and bring them along to your way of thinking and help them cultivate their own um, empathy quotient, you know? Yeah. And I think sometimes in the disability space, I think in all social justice spaces, really, we forget that like the goal should be building a bridge, not burning one. And I think we just, and I always say this because I feel like building a bridge together is way more fun than burning it because we made a mistake. So right. like, let's, you know, um, so, but I totally agree with you and I thank you for sharing that. Tell me a little bit more about your advocacy work and what does advocacy look like for you? Man, advocacy has been such a long journey, such a never ending um, thing that you have to do day in and day out. And um, my journey, you know, on advocacy is on so many fronts. Um, you know, in my job, I'm an advocate, advocate for others. And then just, you know, sometimes I just, I'm advocating for myself, but there's always a component where other people will reap the benefit. So advocacy on transportation has probably been my biggest advocacy hurdle, um, learning to drive and getting state and vocational rehabilitation to uh, help me with the modifications on my vehicles almost 15 or so years ago when I was first learning to drive. That was a huge advocacy effort. Um, I was denied by my case manager almost seven times, which was probably over the course of nine years. Um, oh. And then I got a new case manager. And the first time he submitted it, I was approved, you know, to get what the vehicle modification. What was the basis for like the seven denials the first time around? There is no basis to me other than prejudice and bias. Um, there was a question once when we would meet about, you know, are your, is your disability going to be an issue? You know, like I was almost digging into their pocket or they didn't believe that I was worthy because of my condition and thought that maybe I would have to stop, stop driving the vehicle because of the degenerative nature, another label of my disability. But yeah. that really wasn't for them to make that call. You know, I'm able to do it at the time right now. And let's say even if I did, couldn't use the vehicle, you know, for maybe just five years when the vehicle can sometimes last 10 and 15 years, knock on wood, you know, I have 154,000 yeah. miles on my vehicle now um, driving these last uh, 12, 13 years. But, you know, that just showed that that person was in a position of power to deny me the things that I need on his own limited thinking and his beliefs yeah. that maybe I wasn't worthy it could have been a black thing. I'll never know. Could have been because I'm black. He was a white, older man. He was nearing retirement, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and slow and soon after uh, my case, he did uh, eventually retire. Um, but you know, just set in those old ways, those old ways of thinking. Um, but I eventually got it. You know, I eventually got it. I kept. I could have given up, but my freedom and my independence was so important to me that I just kept doing appeals um, for, for that long a time. And one of the things I talk about in my book, uh, Disability and Anecdotal Field Guide for the Rest of Us, is you know people can ask for another case manager sooner than I did. Like if you take home nothing else, is that I was afraid. You know, I felt oppressed. I felt a little bit voiceless. I know I could continue appealing, you know, as long as they would let me. 
until it, you right. know, it eventually died and was done. But hopefully right. I can mitigate, you know, that that time wasted for someone else. And so those are some of the things I'm talking about and the advice that I'm giving. I should have asked for a case, another case manager sooner um, than I did. But fear, you know, anxiety, feeling oppressed, uh, feeling marginalized. All, before that was a thing, you know, this is 12, 13 years ago. Yeah, and so um, just the lessons I've learned from my advocacy efforts and help people make better decisions. We're afraid to get rid of our doctors. Like why? Yeah. They don't yeah. They don't really listen to us sometimes. They don't do what we ask them to do. Most of the but, time anyway. But we'll suffer for with them for 15 and 30 years you know, and not get the things we need and we should fire them. Yeah, I think we, I think everybody should have the, every disabled person, everybody should have the right to fire their doctor and say, you know, no, no, I don't want this, especially because disabled people are so not listened to in the medical field. I think you're right. Um, but I love the name of your book, Disability Anecdotal Field Notes for the Rest of Us, uh, right? Yes. It's so awesome. I love it. So like, Tell me about, a little bit about your book and tell me like what, tell me all about it. Sure. So my book, um, Disability and Anecdotal Field Guide for the Rest of Us, it's a mouthful. Every time I say it, I'm like, wow, you should lose, use fewer words. But um, I just love it because it's nine <laughs> chapters of um, different topics. I'm talking about transportation, which I mentioned and kind of summed up what that chapter is about. Um, yeah. Caregiving. Uh, which we're all dealing with now, the, the uh, shortage of caregivers in the pandemic. Um, transportation, sorry, I already mentioned that. Um, mental health and physical health and um, you know, recreation and leisure for people with disabilities. Talk about yeah. how I wish I kept swimming. Um, you know, talking about my Me strength. too. I stopped swimming too because of disability and because of care and all yes. the things. I used to swim. I used to go to the pool with my, with my mom whenever we would go on a trip. I go, I've been swimming on my own since I was 16. And well, not on my own, but sort of on my own. You know, they, she has to be there to make sure I breathe. But I stopped because I couldn't get care to throw me in the pool. Yeah. And so I haven't done it in like, God, seven years now almost. And it feels like... I loved it because in the pool was freedom and now it I was such freedom, but now I'm afraid. So I've, I've been away from it so long. And like you mentioned, it's a full on like day operation to oh, yeah. you know get dressed, to lug the Hoyer lift if the pool doesn't have a lift. But I was swimming when I was five and six years old because my elementary school had a therapeutic pool. You know, Amazing. and it was wonderful and it was warm and I love getting in there. I did not want to get out, but I was just so free. I was able to move. It would have been good, not only for my physical health, but for. I wait, push yourself to do this. Um, I would right now, my lungs and things are really good. My doctors say, because, um, you know, I did it for so long, but during camp and about 16, 15, when you had to stop going to camp, camp stops when you're 17 um, for the Muscular Dystrophy Association, which I wish they would continue it even now, even like 40 something, I wanna to go to camp sometimes, but um, just the camaraderie and the fun. And also I talk about letting your kids go to camp. I had to beg my mom to let me go to camp. She's like, I don't know, I'll leave you for an entire week. I'm like, yes, um, yes. You know, yes, so let your let kids me be a kid. you know, go to camp. Yeah, it was so fun. 
And plus it taught me how to be uh, dependent on other people. You know, a lot of people get stuck in this kind of thing that you think your parents are going to live forever and, you know, you're never going to be without them, but they're going to age. They're going to be physically unable to assist you and care for you. And so when you go to camp, there's that autonomy. If you don't want that certain breakfast, you know, for the day, you speak up and say, can I have something else, please? All of those things, all of those independence, uh, you know, gathering things that speak up that advocacy, those kinds of things happen and are cultivated um, at camp. So I talk about, you know, leisure and recreation and how that, how important that is um, to do that. I also talk about using the Metro for the first time. My mom didn't want me to do that. No, it's dangerous out there. What if you get stuck? You know, and I have gotten stuck. Your front wheels get stuck in between the train and the track. And you just, you just look around and say, Hey, Hey, help me. And somebody will come and help you pop a wheelie and get you on the train, total strangers. But that comes from all of your experiences, building that up and, and managing caregivers, managing care, asking for assistance, getting the help you need, hollering yeah. like, hey, dude, you know, finding Let's some talk about cake. caregiving <laughs> a little bit. Like, I would love a beefcake to help me. So if there are any <laughs> beefcakes out there that want to help me do care, I'm down for it. Me I'm, too. I'm I'll take one too. We had yeah. a beefcake and a beefcake with a brother. Yeah, a beefcake with a brother. Let's do some care. But let's talk about caregiving a little bit because we kind of touched on it a minute ago. During the COVID crisis, all of us are dealing with a lack of care, as I've shared on the pod before. Like, I've gone weeks without showering. I've gone, I've had lots of time without care. I rescheduled the other day with you because I couldn't shower. And I was like, we move it over. Thank you so much. So yes, like, yes. So, like, I know what it's like to need care. I know mm-hmm. the emotional part of needing care it can be really hard to ask yes. for help to do something that so many of us take for granted. What is caregiving like for you? It is the same. It is going without sometimes. It is using a bit of extra perfume. Um, even though there's like nobody around sometimes when you do these events, when you do, um, you know, virtual work and meet with people, you just want to feel good in yourself and having a caregiver to come help with the bathing and the, you know, the restroom and all of that meal prep, even getting things down to meal prep. I'm very fortunate in that I have a permanent backup in my mom, but even a few times she's been sick and I had to call someone, you know, on an emergency. But one thing yeah. I'll say that should go hand in hand is the caregiving and the emergency preparedness chapter that I've written, where I talk about, you know, you need to have money set aside to be able to hire someone from an agency. And most people yeah. with disabilities aren't thinking about that. You know, if you have a like a Medicaid program that pays for your caregiver, you know, that money is not enough. They don't get paid enough. They don't get any health care. And so yeah. you sometimes need to be able to supplement that. But yes, it has been hard in the pandemic. People are no-shows um, just because they don't respect your time or think that you have a life. So there's that thinking. But they're also no-shows because they have illness of their own. They have family of their own they have to care for. There's no daycare, you know, sometimes to, for them to be able to drop their kids off and then come yeah. help take care of us. Um, and yeah. then the compensation is so poor. Um, and so those are just so many factors we're up against um, in order to find people. And the work is just so um, 
it's it's yeah it's pitying work though like the caregiving industry is not valued you know no the caregiving industry it's broken and it needs a huge overhaul because a huge overhaul yes i think they are the people that make sure that we have the independence that we strive for so much and i love caregivers and i think caregiving is such a vital thing actually you know i'm going this weekend i'm going on a trip with my mom and she's doing my care right and i'm doing it for a company and i said to the company you have to pay her she needs to be compensated for helping me without her like she's almost 70 but she's still doing it with me so like yeah (laughs) she needs and i had to like explain to them you got to pay her because that's right vital to me being here so yeah i think it shouldn't matter that she's related to you you know that she's providing care shouldn't matter at all for that for the four days we're together she's my primary caregiver so just like i would hire from an agency she deserves to get paid and so i constantly tell people even though she's my mom she's still she deserves dollars for this that's right that's right and I'll tell you a funny story. My mom did get paid one time. Um, and I didn't know, like they handed out these envelopes. I went to a conference for people with disabilities way back in the day in DC. And my mom started being nicer to me. She's like, do you need assistance? Can I help you with something? Like she started acting like a caregiver. And I was like, did you get paid too? And she's like, why? Yes. Now, is there anything I can do for you? <laughs> it was just so funny that like this little payment that she got, it wasn't even that much, kind of like was like we started like a real, you know, re- like relationship where she was. And, and that just was so motivating. She's like, why don't you get some more events like that where I can be paid to? I'm like, I'm sorry. There's so few and far between. But yeah. that's, you know, that's the reality. It was just funny. It was it was great because, you know, there was a, a you know, People don't understand too that it's hard to have family caregivers. You know, if you it's, fall out with your family and then you got to go back and ask them for help, you know, you kind of got to suck it up. Like I you mean, just had a blowout argument, which families have, which is natural, you know. But you you're going to need help. Of course, they love you. They're going to help you, but it just might be the silent treatment while yeah. we you know, get ready and get up and go to bed or whatever we're doing mom and i we have a great we have a great relationship and like but we've been on trips where we're both fucking tired of the other one and we're (laughs) like you know what you're exhausting and you're exhausting me right now yeah so we'll do the care but we're not going to talk because we're both (laughs) tired totally that happens to me and my mom too yeah the the, like caregiver burnout but i think you know i wish in the disability justice space we would talk more about caregiving mm-hmm. and how vital it is for us. And I don't think we do it enough because I think unfortunately the disability space is so, the narrative is still so much on independence and doing it yourself and no one's talking about, like I love what you talked about how like, how do you learn to be dependent on someone else mm-hmm. but still have independence? Right, right. It's We're all interdependent. Nobody is really independent. We all really need each other for different things. And that's just, you know, even people who are able-bodied, they still have, you know, times where they need other people to do stuff. But talking about the compensation piece, how many things do people with disabilities ask to get asked, get asked to go to things and speak for free? Like it took me oh, yeah. gas to get here. It took me caregivers to get here. You know, I have to pay bills too. 
you know, yeah, why not I compensate deserve, us? And I, you know what about the, the compensation thing too is I deserve to not just survive. Mm-hmm. I deserve to thrive. I deserve to have nice things. I deserve to, to splurge on, you know, a nice lunch sometime. I deserve to, yes. you know, do the things I want to do. And mm-hmm. so I constantly tell people, you know, it costs that much because it takes me time. Right, it takes right. me like there's a running joke from something that I watch on YouTube and she reviews like people who are choosy beggars who ask for like things for zero dollars. And mm-hmm. she's always like, no, it costs that much because it takes me fucking hours. So That's you're going right. to pay yes. more money because <laughs> it takes me a time. Yeah. And I think, you know, people don't forget. People don't realize the the amount of time it takes for us to do stuff. Right. And that if you want me to speak and tell my lived experience to you and share my lived experience so you can check a box, mm-hmm. which is fine. I don't mind being your token for the day. If you pay me, sure. That's right. But That's if, right. if I'm going to do that and tokenize myself for you, give me the dollars. That's right. And th- But the thing is, they have no problem giving able-bodied people dollars. You know, yeah. able-bodied speakers commanding $5,000 and, and $10,000 for a 60-minute speech or, you yeah. know, a two-hour workshop. And we came there. It was a struggle, you know, that maybe the ramp van broke down, had to rent a car, which also costs an exorbitant amount of money. It's a thousand dollars for to yeah. rent a accessible van for a week. You know, all of these are added expenses that cost a lot to be disabled. You know, yep. and this we're not given extra money, you know, based on the the severity of our disability. It is what it is. That's what it is. It costs me extra, you know. So, and that's not even factored into it and we can't even get the baseline amount you know that you're giving freely to everyone else you want that person yeah. to come you're willing to pay but when it comes our time you don't oh it's, we'll see and we'll check our budget yeah and i mean there are times where as an as a speaker and i've been doing this now for like 10 years there are certainly times where i will look at their budget i'll look at what they can do i'll think about what their mission statement is and if I'm like, look, I really support you. And I know you have not a lot. Give me as much as you can. And then we'll go from there. But like, I would, if they say, can we, can you do it for free? Like I still say, no, mm-hmm. I'll say, give me 250 for groceries that week. Give me something right. so I can at least function and be okay. Because mm-hmm. you want me to, to, you know, prostrate myself for you and tell my story, which I don't mind doing fine, right. but I deserve right. to eat. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something, you know, that it just, it's mind boggling when people are talking and touting such justice and equity and equality, and and then skimp out on these very things that they're talking about, or that they say in their mission that they're about, and that they do. And it's just like, well, what are you like, what are you been doing? And I, I try to remember, I try to do it on a case by case basis now. I look, again, I look at their, what, what kind of corporation are they? Do they have a bunch of corporate people and a board? If they do, you're going to pay me. If, they, if it's just like five people trying to do a nice thing and they want me to talk and I know they're disabled people trying to make a difference, like, mm-hmm. okay, I will, I'll consider it. But it really depends on who's asking me and what have they done before. That's right. Um, tell me more about these all these books you've written are they all disability related books or are they do you what kind of stuff do you write about 
other than yeah, I really well, my my heart is in romantic suspense. Uh, most of my books are uh, romance, so about relationships. Um, I do have some disabled characters. One of them has a heart condition. Um, another one had Villa Ligro, which is like the Michael Jackson skin disease. Um, yep. And so I do write about characters, diverse characters. Um, they are mostly African-American. I mostly write Black love, but um, I love fiction. I love the happily ever after, the falling in love. Um, I love those stories. And that's what I started writing. I won a contest while I was in college. Um, while I was failing college, I should mention, I was just so deeply depressed. And one night I was crying and I saw a contest announced by a reputable publishing house that said, you know, you think you can write, uh, please submit your book and the deadline and everything. And I won the writing contest uh, eventually. Amazing. Yeah. Several months later, and it just changed my life. I got a trip to New York. I got a monetary advance and um, I got a book award. And also, obviously, part of the prize was to, um, you know, publish the book. So I was publishing the anthology with the other runners up in the contest. So four of us total. And that just changed. That gave me validation about my craft and that I was a pretty good writer um, because I won the contest and people liked it and they published the book. But um, writing has just been a part of me and a way to for me to cope with issues, cope with things that I have in my mind and that I wrestle with. And, you know, writing is also a way for me to um, give a happy ending to some of the things I see on the news. A lot of my stories come from the news, um, kind of ripped from the headlines type of thing. And yeah. so um, like I was obsessed with missing persons when I was young, Natalie Holloway, when she went missing, it's like 20 years old now, nobody even really remembers that. But Every day I just like try to find out what happened to her. And I just know, you know, I don't know anything about her. I'm not, you know, related to her or know her family or anything, but just looking from the inside out, I wrote a story about missing persons um, and kind of gave it an ending that was satisfying. Um, a woman was looking for her sister who went missing years ago. And so she kind of goes through that, but it was a way for me to seal up uh, these stories that caused me like angst and like worry and concern and give it a better, more palatable ending um, to kind of fix it in my world and, and make it like make sense. Like I still, it's still such um, anxiety and just, you know, I just think about the mother, um, Beth Holloway, Natalie's mother, and um, just thinking about those stories. It's like, what is the end? What happened to these people? How did they change how did they deal with their grief um and you know disability can be grieving too and so yeah. writing writing kind of gives me a salve um like an ointment or you know some kind of um soothing oil to help deal with the days the days events one of the things that i that, i mean there's so much that i can unpack there first of all i like the year first of all i like the year of black disabled writer because I know that we're out there, but we rarely hear about all the intersections together. And I also like that you write about both disability stuff and not disability stuff at all. I think, yeah. I think the, the, the what? Are the, let me try words. I think the fact that you you're not only focused on disability as a writer is really important. That way, you can focus on different things that, that fascinate you and that are exciting for you. Um, 
And I also I also like that writing for you, you say it's a solve for you. It's something you can put on to to digest yes. kind of some of the stuff you've gone through as a disabled person. What kind of um what kind of characters do you want to see as a disabled writer that are disabled? Yeah, I would like to see more, you know, Black love. Um, it's hard for me to find images of, you know, overweight women who use wheelchairs uh, falling in love. You know, that's who I am. Um, that's what I would like to see in, you know, heterosexual relationships or whatever. And I'm sure other groups want their um, their type to win too. So, but I don't see any of that. You know, there is not a single black love story um, of a person with a disability. Now, Allie Stoker, um, who's an, a, a Tony award-winning actress on Broadway, um, she yeah. was in a Lifetime movie um, called Christmas Ever After or something like that. I loved it. Yeah, that's right. It totally embodied everything I felt. And I still can get that imagery from that. It was so awesome. So I know we're going to get there eventually because we had her. So I yeah. love that. They did a good job. You know, I couldn't find any real fault with that story when I find so much fault with others and the way they portray things. But yeah. it was so real. It was still wholesome and kind of a sweet romance. Um, you know, and I want to see more of that. That was awesome. People were talking about that story, you know, in the especially in the romance community. And I put that in all my workshops that this should be required watching. Because what is the real difference here? But the, the little, she used, when the guy would come around, she would kind of run away real fast, push herself real fast in her wheelchair. That is totally me. Like if somebody cute is like talking to me, I kind of like just run away. Like, I can't talk to you. Um, like I'm so like, can be, have a tendency to be immature about loving relationships. But, you know, I eventually is, come around and warm up. Is that because like, is that because like as a disabled person, and going through all, we've, all you've gone through in your life, it's been hard for you to find relationships on a personal level because of disability and because the way people look at us? Absolutely. Especially in the Black community, I think that, um, you know, and I'm not saying that I'm closed off to other relationships, but I have noticed, and I've dated, you know, white and uh, Black people, but, you know, there is an acceptance factor there among culturally, uh, among uh, men, men who are Black, and being able to, you know, be with a disabled woman, um, can they really handle it? You know, are they strong enough? And of course, I believe that there is somebody out there and I know that their relation, the relationships do exist. I'm just saying they're not as prevalent, they're hard to find, and you have to kind of create that on your own. You gotta be the person to kind of step up and to make that happen. But, um, you know, I do think culturally there is an acceptance issue because, um, you know, status sometimes and your success in relationships is wrapped up in the upright, long-haired, usually fake Brazilian hair, um, long-haired woman that the person <laughs> wants to be with. So that is, you know, too many people believe who you are with is a reflection on you and who, what your ability is to get. And so that is, that is so deeply hurtful. You know, I, yeah. I, I even joke that you'd rather be with a crazy, beautiful woman who cut your thing thing off than to be with someone whose brain is all 
intact. Like if she goes crazy, she's going to be gunning for you and try to kill you. Whereas giving us an opportunity, you know, beauty and, and the physical ability might not be there, but we're still loving and kind and good persons to be in a relationship with. So that's the thing that annoys me about culturally. If I were just going to stay in my culture and I'm not, because it's just probably not happening, you know, that I can see, I realize that can change because I do believe, but you know, you just, it's just so much to go up against. If you're, if part of your identity is wrapped in, you know, a beautiful, able-bodied woman, then I don't stand a chance. How, how do you think we should, so two questions I have when you were talking and the first question is, how do you think we should talk about disability in the black community and in communities of color to combat the narrative that you just spoke about? It's so hard. We're up against so much. We're up against um, people already feeling some kind of emasculation about themselves. We're up against that. Yeah. We're up against society views and standards that we have to live up to. Um, we're up against uh, people's own mental uh, capacity to be assured in themselves that limit them from, from dating people like me. Um, we're, it's just so much. Uh, but if people are going to be confident and assured in themselves, then I think they'll be get, willing to give others a chance. If they could look at it from a mind connection and a spiritual connection rather than a physical libido connection, we could stand yeah. a chance. Um, and so it really requires um, people to be assured in themselves and be their own person in order to make that happen. And um, and there has to be a willingness. You know, you could you could have all of the goodest, the best intentions in the world, but you have to be in your own mind kind of solid about things, willing to accept things. One of the romances I'm writing now is about a man who kind of had like a one night stand with a young lady. I haven't finished it and it's been more than probably seven years in the making because it's so close to home and it's hard to write um, from a disabled woman who uses a wheelchair perspective. I've written about all other women with disabilities, um, but he was taking care of his mother who died of cancer and he's a builder. So he built this house for his mom. His dad um, ended up leaving the mom because she got sick and he just couldn't handle it. Right. So it's like, so there's like a generational thing and, and the dad regrets that the father, this man's father regrets that he left his wife at her worst time. But the, the man, my hero, you know, he's in love with this woman who has a disability. They met in college. They used to work together on all these different uh, accessibility projects because he was in like an architecture program and she was in like a psychology um, program. So they would always be helping each other. And so they kind of fell in love through that. She has a child that she didn't tell him about. He went off to war after college and um, he kind of comes back. And the dad is such a bigot that she did write the dad and say, I'm carrying your son's child. You know, can you get in touch with him? And he didn't believe her. So he shunned her and his granddaughter. So the guy is back to renovate her house, like, you know, 10 years later. And the daughter is away at camp. 
And so like everything's going to kind of converge and come to a head. You know, he wants to do the work for her bathroom and renovate it because he loves, you know, his what he does. Yeah. But she's like, no, 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 you can't do it. So she hires this old guy to renovate her her bathroom. And that guy has a heart attack on the floor oh, no. of the bathroom. So now she has to get this other, this her former love to um to do it. And so they start working together and the love is kind of rekindled. But I'm also having to give him a backstory. I feel. Um, I don't have to, but this is what I want to do. He has a heart for people like that because of his mom. He tried to do everything to make her comfortable. He already has yeah. an accessible house, which is kind of like, I'm looking for a carpenter. That's what I think. I'm like, oh, I'm going to marry Jesus. He's a carpenter. But I'm looking for like a real life carpenter that already knows how to renovate everything. And I'd be like, oh, we're going to be a great pair. But so their love is rekindled through that, through them working together through the forgiveness that has to happen because she kept this child. Um, you know, some of his friends are like, you know, she, she kept your child. She took care of her. Get over yourself. You got mad and went off to war and didn't speak to her again. So you're partly in the wrong too. So that's kind of like what I do is try to, you know, create these scenarios. And that actually, that story that I was writing at the time I was writing it, I actually yeah. met someone who could build stuff. And it was the craziest thing. We're still friends. We're not awesome. like, you know, like, like intimate friends, but yeah. it, the potential is there. But it was just amazing to me that as I was writing this fictional tale, the, some of these things kind of unfolded. His dad had cancer. He has a ramp at his house because of his dad, even though his dad's deceased. It was just so like mind boggling to me, but it was almost and like writing, writing the vision. Yeah, and I love how like, I love how in the story and in the, in the the story that you've written, like if the character was not disabled, it would just read like a your typical off the shelf romance novel. But I love that you've weaved in like parts of disability that the disability community will fully connect with, and I think we need to see more characterizations like that. And I just think it's so like I want to see a romance novel about. A physically disabled person that I think it's so necessary yes yes um and how do you think that we on that note of needing more physically disabled characters in literary fiction how do you think we write good disabled characters yeah you know it's not to me it's not that hard but I'm disabled so of course um I can see how others struggle with that but you know, really challenging yourself not to get stuck in stereotypes, really coming from a, a, ref, a frame of reference where you've interviewed lots of different people. Most people interview one person or they stick with them for one day and that's their frame of reference. That's where yeah. they draw from instead of going to, you know, multiple people with disabilities. I realize people don't have that kind of time sometimes, but they need to make the time if they want to tell a realistic and authentic story about someone else. And so it's really important that they do that um, and really get outside themselves, you know, and talk and I to think... people and more deeper questions. That's the thing too. Deeper questions instead of just, oh, tell me about your day, you know, yeah. and, and get deeper into the psychology behind living with a disability, the day-to-day -day operations, the caregiver, both the paid caregiver and the mom or dad caregiver. You know, talk to them too for perspective to make this a very broad and, you know, well thought out 
uh, trope. Yeah, I think too also what you could do if you're a writer wanting to write stuff around disability and let's say you're non-disabled but you want to include that as part of your story, hire disabled people to write it with you. Why can't they be like you as the author and them as the co-author? Like have them write it with you, pay them to write it with you so that you will, or, or if not that, pay a disabled reader to read the final product and be like, well, this doesn't work. Here's how this might work. Here's some perspective here. Like I've done projects for big TV companies, can't say who, but I've done stuff for big companies mm-hmm. where I've got to read, to read scripts and say That's like, awesome. here's how this would work. Here's how this doesn't work. Here's why this would be, here's my idea for this. And they may or may not use it, but at least you've given them the real world experience and the lived experience so they can put it into that character. Definitely. And like you said, just to reiterate, compensate inclusive readers. You know, they're out there. They're willing to read your work. And also, you know, you ought to be interested in not having a headache after it comes out of all these reviewers who are going to totally, you know, glom onto you and be like, you got this wrong. You got that wrong. Like, I don't want that kind of, you know, pressure. And I don't want something to happen after the fact where I have a really bad book because I didn't do my due diligence at the beginning. Exactly. And I think, you know, the disability community, uh, we're not always the kindest. So you don't want to, you don't, <laughs> yes. You don't want to write something you because you made a mistake. We can be, if we see something we don't like, we can be pretty fierce pretty quickly. So I would suggest any writers out there, if you're not disabled and you want to explore disability, that's great. Hire disabled people to do it with you. That's right. That's right. And pay them. Um, yeah. And pay them properly too. Um, there's something you wrote in your form that I want to talk to you about before I forget. Uh, where is it now? Did I lose it? Is it gone? Oh, here it is. Wait, I had it and now it's disappeared. Hold on. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be professional. Um, <laughs> you are. Oh, yeah. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about loss. And you had talked about the sudden loss of a primary caregiver and the death of a caregiving parent. Can we talk a bit about that? Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, I had a caregiver. She should go in the Jenna's Book of World Records because she was with me for 10 years. Like that is a rarity. It rarely happens. She was wonderful. But what I felt like sometimes um, people don't make room for and they don't understand always is that it is you can grieve someone who's not dead, but who had to step away for a while. So this caregiver that was with me for 10 years, she just got sick and then went in the hospital and then wasn't able to return to work. That's still a type of loss and a very devastating loss for someone who's almost like a second mom to you Um, and just such a wonderful caregiver, you know, and then just the fallout of trying to find people who last, you know, for weeks at a time and never, I haven't found anyone and it's been almost four years um, that, you know, is, is willing to work. Um, And she was older um, when she started with me in her sixties and about 74, 75 when she left. So, you know, it's, it's still a grief process. It's still a process to get through. And I wish other people who, especially, you know, relatives um, would understand that that's an adjustment, you know, and that's hard um, to, to move on from that. Training new people is probably the worst 
aspect of hiring. It is so exhausting to do that. It is is. one of the hardest things to do because not only do you have to train them to do your care properly, you also are trying to see through that whole process. Is there a kernel of friendship here? Is there something we can relate about together? Is there something that will make them want to stay for five, six, seven years to do my care as things change? Because I think what people don't understand about caregiving is there's a huge amount of trust that we put in these individuals. And it does become, they do become like our family. And so when they leave, when they either leave the job or can't do the job anymore, there is a huge grief that comes with that. You're right. It is. And the other thing that's so hard is that sometimes I don't, I tell people up front that I'm not really looking for companionship or friendship. And that's because, um, you know, you've been burned by these other relationships. You know, there's also baggage in this type of relationship that we both bring to the table. And so it's hard because, you know, sometimes I don't really feel like I want a friend and to become friends with you requires a certain level of vulnerability that I don't want to put into until we're at least like a year out. And I know you're going to be here, but then if you're going to leave, then I've really exposed myself, let down my guard and tried to be a friend with you. And it didn't work out, you know, such as life. I'm not saying that these are experiences that we're not going to have, but that they're just equally hard because you're looking someone to be a help and to eventually be a friend, but you also are an employer. And so that's another dimension that you have to be, like sometimes you can't be friends and employer because something's gonna go south and you have to kind of switch between the employer role and the friend role and those lines get blurred. Yeah, and so exactly. then it's hard to it's hard to kind of put your foot down about things. As soon as you become friends, then they get lax and think everything's a-okay. Oh, 15 minutes late won't bother her. We're friends. And I'm just like, no, I got to go to work. I have a 10 o'clock, you know, and and you should just respect. You wouldn't treat your regular employer like that at the other job that you go to. Like you have to, it's hard to set up those boundaries. You know, I get accused of being very tough in an interview. You know, caregivers who do later become my friends and who find out that I'm such a jokester, and we just laugh all the time. They tell me at the interview, I was thinking, I don't want to work for this lady. And it's hard <laughs> to relax that because yeah. I got to come across as a tough guy and tell you that this is what the job is going to be. Don't mess around mm-hmm. and don't play around with me. And then kind of be like, okie dokie, everything's okay as soon as you start coming. But I want you yeah. to know, I, like I have a trouble finding a balance. And so when I'm interviewing people now, because I've had to interview people recently trying to find a night person, you know, I have to really balance like, wow, am I too tough? Um, Can I throw in some jokes in here so that they'll know that I'm okay, that I'm a really great person, that my family is really nice to work with um, and that it won't be so difficult, you know? And that's hard because I wonder if I'm scaring them off by kind of laying down the law. At the same time, if you act too lax, they'll steamroll you. Yeah, and they're going to walk all over you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. so it's it's so difficult. You should write a a romance book about that, about like write write a romance book, but nothing to do with romance, just about (laughs) the relationship between between a caregiver and a a client and the friendships you have to 
forge and all the stuff we just talked about like that would be a really fascinating story because people mm-hmm. don't understand that but we do right right i have um started working on a book you know i have to kind of start them when the ideas are fresh and then put them aside for a while and write notes uh when i can but i label the type of caregivers that i've had and some of the stories um you know that that have come along with my different experiences like you know, i given them silly names like the late weed smoker or something like that though chronically late because they're probably smoking weed or something and honestly i've never had anybody smoke weed, but, um, or I wouldn't know it because I don't know what that smells like, but just, you know, all these funny stories about, you know, um, you know, different little things like that. And so I do hope that that will see the light of day, which I got stories up the wazoo. So, you know, I, yeah. I do work on them when I, when I can. I think those stories are really vital because I think the disabled community understanding or seeing themselves through care through a care story like that, that is a love story that might not even that might not even have anything to do with sexuality, but it's just showing the love between a client and a caregiver. It that could be a whole novel series by itself. Yeah, and we forget the intimacy piece. I mean, they are taking care of us intimately sometimes, and that's hard, you know, because of yeah. this relationship. And you know, they're helping you bathe, they're they're touching you you know, and they're doing different things to help you as a means to an end to get you where you need to go and get dressed. And that's the other thing, you know, I had a caregiver that wanted to, um, as her interview, just wanted to come and observe. And I'm so glad she called and said she couldn't come because I was like, you want me to expose myself, you know, for you to not really be sure that this is, um, you know, what you want to do, you know, and I'm thinking like, I'm not showing you my Wahoo and you're not even sure you know, that we're going to have a lasting relationship. Like, I just, I don't want to. Like, that's embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, I completely, and I'm in a situation with my care where I don't get to hire who the staff is. They're hired by the people that work in the building where I live. Mm -hmm. So some days I have no idea who's showing up and I just have to, I have to, you really have to give up a piece of your dignity and compartmentalize that in a way that is, and I've done adult film, I've done different things where like I'm used to being naked in front of a lot of people, but I agree with right. you, doing it in front of a caregiver and being vulnerable like that in front of a caregiver who you might not get along with and who you might not see again is right. really, really hard. It is so hard. It's just, you just feel, you know, I don't, I want to say violated is a, is a strong word. I don't think that's it, but you just feel like your dignity is just in the toilet. And it's just so hard to, you know, come and observe and watch the other, watch the primary caregiver teach you. And I don't know what's going on in your brain. Like, I'm not doing this. I'm out of here. I'm just going to be nice for this next hour. And I'm never coming back. And that does happen. And that's hard. It's also hard not to take it personally. It really isn't about you. It really isn't about you. Um, But, you know, just like when people cheat on each other, they say, oh, that's not about you. Well, how am I supposed to not make this about me? It happened to me. They cheated yeah. on me, you know? And so how do you not take that personally? You know, so it's like, you can't. You do work through it and, you know, do some affirmations or something for the day. You know, my Wahoo is being worthy of seen by someone who cares. 
you know, or something like that. But it's like, please tell me, know, please tell me that's an affirmation you have in your day to day. And if it's oh, not, no. can it be from now I just on? Made that it... up. I just, I probably should put that in my, in my, in my thing. Some people are totally not going to get this, but for the people that do, you know, it's just that's what you have to do. You kind of have to give yourself a little pep talk. Uh, they call you. They say they're not coming back. This isn't the right job for me. You know, I didn't like your Wahoo. You know, I'm moving on. <laughs> so funny oh my god I didn't, oh my oh no i think we found the tag for this episode the title I <laughs> the wahoo show yeah, so funny oh no that's funny but i agree with you i think that i think the the level of stress we're under in trying to be okay with strangers in our home people we might never see again showing them parts of the care experience that even for us are I'm 37 and I've had care for my whole life and watching somebody watch me take a shit is not my favorite part of the day. Right. Right. You got to deal with it and you just move on. But it's really hard to be like, Oh, how do I feel about that? I don't know. Do I feel okay? Or do I feel like, like it's hard to do that, to have somebody help me with that and then have to jump on a podcast or call about like sexiness. And be like, oh, guess what I did an hour ago? Yeah. <laughs> and guess who saw it and had to help me? Yeah. There are multiple people involved. Yeah. It's yeah. just, and we need to be thoughtful about what people go through. You know, before people come to meetings, staff meetings, meetings, you know, that are professional, you got to think about all of that. That's a way to develop empathy for others and their experience. You know, thinking about Tracy had a hard time. You know, the caregiver was late. She didn't want to help her put on her favorite shirt. And she, you know, barely brushed her teeth because the caregiver had to leave and get back home. At least the caregiver was nice. Then we start like, like valuing little things. Well, at least they were nice enough to come for an hour. And yet they still want to be paid for four hours. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, you don't even realize that a lot of caregivers sometimes nickel and dime us, you know, and aren't even fulfilling the full levels of the job and the details and the tasks that we need to get done yet still badger us you know about money and it's like you haven't even done half of the stuff that i need and you're asking about compensation for time you did not work that happens a lot too yeah and so we need to think about how stressful how much it takes to get all of this done like i'm carrying a little bit of resentment now um that i'm working through because I feel like, you know, certain uh, people in my circles don't understand how for almost 20 years, I've done the bulk of the work of finding, hiring, training, placing the ads, paying for the ads, um, you know, $300 sometimes to pay for these ads, to, to put the care in. And then just now that it's hard care. just to get even a single applicant, you know, wow. You know, and Craigslist is like used to be $35, went up to $45. Care.com is $150 a year. Uh, Indeed is like $18 an applicant, all of these different things. It's financially taxing too. And just, you know, when I talk about resentment, it's that 20 years I did this on my own. Now I need a little bit more assistance from family support because it's getting so dire and it's getting so hard. And I'm yeah. not getting the returns, not getting the applicants that I need. 
Um, and I'm asking them, you know, could you do this? Could you go to the post a flyer? Could you go and take care of this for me? You know, all those little things. And they don't think about what goes in. They just know somebody shows up at the door that I've tried to vet. And I've had Zoom interviews in the height of pandemic. No more personal meetings. I don't meet people at my house. I meet them, you know, on Zoom during the pandemic. And I met them in coffee shops and restaurants, you know, prior to um, COVID. But I got to take time out to do that. Yeah. And, 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 I know. and check references and call uh, people. And, you know, are this is this person I'm about to hire a serial killer? You know, who am I getting here? Yeah. Um, you know, have they ever assaulted you? You know, just I don't ask those questions, but, you know, you have to get at them in a more cavalier kind of smoke and mirrors kind of way. I mean, you, I mean, I think maybe you should ask about have, have, you know, have you been rough with the client before? Because right, of course, stuff you like don't know that. until you don't know until they get in your home sometimes that they're not fit for the job. And I learned I've learned that the hard way. So like, like, you know, I think, but I agree with you. There's so much that goes into caregiving that is not talked about. And I think it's time that we talk about it. I could sit and chat with you for like another five hours. It was so fun. Like, yeah, it was such a, it was such a, such a pleasure. Um, but Tracy, how can the people get a hold of you? How can they buy your books? How can they support you? How do they do all that? Yeah, people can get my book. Um, I'm offering my book right now just at cost. So they only have to pay shipping and handling. If they want to sign a copy from me, they can just message me at tracygarner.com. Just go to my website and click on the contact link. Tracy is spelled T-R-A-C-E-E, Garner, G-A-R-N-E-R.com tracygarner.com and I'm on Instagram and Twitter um, and Facebook, um, Instagram and Twitter at T Garner, T-E-E Garner. And I look forward to, to connecting with everyone. And I hope that what we've shared has been helpful. And I also thank you, Andrew, for the opportunity. Oh, it's such a pleasure. And I, like, I, I definitely want to put you in touch with my friends at the Cripple Threat Podcast, because you should definitely talk with them. My friend, Tony, who is one of the co-hosts there has SMA too. And you guys would have such a, a fun time reviewing something, reviewing like some some disability content for sure. So I'll make sure Absolutely. to make those connections. Thank and I you. loved having you on here. It was so great. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, friends. That's another episode of Disability After Dark. From me, your disabled daddy, Andrew Gerza. If you want to follow my work, you can follow me on social media on Instagram and Twitter at andrewgerza underscore or you can follow my website www.andrewgerza.com to find out more about what I do. And of course, you can follow us on Patreon to get the show one day early and completely ad-free by going to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark or you can send us an email to disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com and let us know your ideas for an episode, for a minisode, or for a guest spot. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back to shine a bright light on your disabled stories next time. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was created, recorded, and produced by Cripple & Co. Productions and Andrew Gerza. Any and all use of materials, graphics, audio recordings, etc. cannot be used or distributed without express permission. 
If you would like to use an episode of the podcast or license an episode of the podcast on your website, please consider emailing Andrew Gerza and Kriplin Co. Productions at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com. Copyright 2022.